millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another podcast of Pete and Gary's Military History. I'm Pete, and this grotesque thing is... Gary Z. No, you're not Gary Zed, you're Gary Bain. Well, I wanted to be like everybody else today. Well, possibly. Um, so what are we doing today, Gary? Well, today, Pete, it's another in our South Nazis in peacetime... At war! ...podcast. Uh, and it's uh, it's all over, or is it? Ooh. Now, part of the reason for the title is uh, that there was relief at the end of the fighting phase of the Iraqi war when uh, uh, George W... Bush declared the, uh, the 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 fighting over in May 2003. I nearly said 1918. <laughs> in May 2003. And it was all somewhat marred by the gradual realisation that they were still in a hostile country uh, that was not, as promised by politicians back home, filled with welcoming crowds acclaiming their saviours. What? You mean politicians sometimes lie? And sometimes get it wrong. Which is this? Wrong. I think it's and both. Lying. I think it's both. Wrong and lying. Wrong lying and, lying. and wrong. So this is Hi, what, I'm wrong and I'm lying. This is what signaler. Well, we use uh, we use pseudonyms in this uh, because yeah, very imaginative ones. Yeah, well, basically because these these guys are young and we'll have friends who take the piss out of them. So uh, we keep a little bit of a, their real names are in the book. But uh, what book are you going to say? And I'll say can't remember the title and really can't. And you don't know it, so we're buggered this time. <laughs> anyway, this is Signaler Dan Z, and he's with 7th Regiment RHA. We pulled up into Almara and somebody, an Iraqi civilian, went up to one of the lads and said, you're going to die in Almara. He was Scottish, I expect. He's a pirate, by the sound of it. <laughs> right. I forgot that's not my Scott. Which immediately uh, put us on, a, 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 on, on the back foot. Hey, up. None of the locals have said that to us before. That sort of made us think a little about what was going to happen in the coming months. We had no idea how long we were going to be up there. It could have been two weeks, two years. Who at that point knew? And this is one thing that soldiers, they never know what's happening. Because nobody usually tells them. It's nice to see the reappearance of the pirate. I, I meant I was going for Scottish, but... <laughs> yes, a Scottish Iraqi. He emigrated there. He emigrated in the First World War. Now, they moved through, um, well, Almar, I can't even say it, Almar, and settled at an old granary 
uh, which with considerable considerable imagination was known as the uh, Granary. Fabulous. Uh, and it could house the F and headquarters batteries of 7th RHA. Now, by this time, uh, uh, there's a new, a new bloke's joining our story. This is Gunner Adam Zed. Oh, was he related to Dan Zed? No, I'd run out of letters. <laughs> I'd got to the end of the alphabet and I thought, what comes after Zed? I thought, just put another Zed. Well, he could be his dad, I suppose. <laughs> his cousin. Uh, and he was transferred, wasn't he? A bit <laughs> he was transferred from the guns. I just remember your tangled family tree. Easily distracted oh, Pete. Sorry. Now, he was transferred from the guns to the headquarter battery, where he joined gunners Dan Zed, his cousin, and Andrew T, Troop Sergeant Major Andy P. He's back at headquarters. Uh, and to all intents and purposes, he was acting as an ordinary signaller, wasn't yeah. he? Now, the men lived in the empty grain silos and they soon fell into a, a regular camp routine, uh, guarding the gates. Uh, they were in Sangers, just like in Northern Ireland, uh, checking vehicles and, of course, general fatigue duties. Uh, I'm generally fatigued. Now, what's one option from the relief? Uh, but boredom, 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 boredom. That's what our punters are thinking at this very moment. Yeah, well, relief was supplied by the duties uh, detached onto a signals rebroadcasting station housed at a former Iraq army camp. Now, this was a, a, an isolated post intended to boost the inadequate signals generated by the Klansman radio sets still in common use by the British Army. Weren't they in use when you were in the They army? were, yeah. 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 Uh, it was, uh, it's worth thinking because they've moved on a long way from Klansman now, haven't they? It was, uh, it was ma- manned by one or two signals with just four gunners who acted as infantrymen uh, to guard them. Uh, uh, and uh, they'd live in, in splendid isolation there. And gunners Adam Zed, Andrew T and Dan Zed, <laughs> I really should have used more imagination, all enjoyed the independence and freedom for, from fatigues this duty offered. And, and, they, and they volunteered on a regular basis for, for these seven-day shifts. Uh, now, um, what, what's close to for the, the, the old Iraqi camp? The older, let's talk about the old. That lay 500 meters uh, from from uh, a small village, and it had a perimeter wall. And when they were in the old Iraqi camp, the gunners took turns on guard duties on the main gate and patrolling round the immediate vicinity, as you'd expect, wouldn't you, Gary? You used to patrol the vicinity of the guard room. And untrammeled by authority figures, he said, ignoring that, they enjoyed themselves enormously in poking about and experimenting with the numerous abandoned tanks and APCs that littered the camp. Armoured personnel carrier uh, that littered the camp. And this is uh, Gunner Adam Zed of the 7th Regiment Royal Horse Artillery. There was a lot of tanks in there, T-54s, T-55s, the main Iraqi battle tank, a lot of APCs, armoured personnel carriers, a couple of jeeps. A lot of the time we were playing about with them, which was quite fun, stuff that I shouldn't really mention. (laughs) There was a lot of old Iraqi anti-aircraft cartridges and munitions. We were putting it in the barrel upside down. We would get a hex block from one of the cookers, chuck it in, shut the breech on the tank, We'd elevate the barrel and it actually fired it about 200 foot. It was basically just something to do. The hex block is what you used to set fire to it. It's a little white block you set fire to it to to make the the, the cooker. Did you used to have them? Hmm. Now, uh, there's a local village close by this camp and it was inevitable that the the local Iraqi 
would be very interested in all this. Uh, and uh, what, what, what normally appears first in any situation like this? I don't know. I wasn't listening. It's the children, Gary. All oh, right. Sorry. Sorry, I got distracted, Pete. Oh, easily distracted Gary, we're going to call you from now on. Yeah, uh, yeah the children gather around because they're, they're, they're not scared. They don't know what there is to be scared of, if you like. And they steadily increase in numbers, don't they? You see it on the news all the time. Yeah. Well, you know, one brave one comes out, and then another one comes out, and then they're suddenly yeah. they're mobbed by loads of little and kids. And this is Signaler Dan Z, another Z. Now, that's the same one. Of 7th Regiment Royal Horse Artillery. We used to get a lot of kids coming up uh, seeing what we were all about, asking for water, asking for food, wanting to play football and all the things that kids in a war zone want. When we first got there, you feel a bit sorry for them. They're scruffy, they're dirty, they're walking around barefoot, they're giving you the puppy dog eyes and you throw them a bar of chocolate. Next thing you know, they brought all their mates along and every single one of them wants a bar of chocolate. It's a bit like Gary. <laughs> if you give Gary a bar of chocolate, he wants another one. They would become extremely irritating. They'd always try and push their luck a little bit. You'd just be swamped with 30 or 40 children on the main gate. I don't know where they came from. That village was a breeding machine. <laughs> Trying to get into the camp, edge their way in to nick something, keep rabbiting on to you about water. After a while, it really does drive you mad to the point where you just stand there and stare straight ahead. And there are no kids anymore because you're ignoring them oh poor kiddies but the curiosity of children could so often lead to tragedy and uh, this was one way or another a war zone and the still deadly debris of war was everywhere and once more this is gonna adam z of seventh regiment yeah this is this is terrible it was a big rocket that's cluster. adam z that's me oh yeah i knew that i've written me down there mm. It was a big rocket cluster bomb about half a kilometre down the road. We heard the kids were playing with an old cluster bomb from the Iran-Iraq war. They picked one up, swung it round and set it off. It set off about ten of them. We were the ones who dealt with all that. I was the first person on the scene. It was quite a mess. A lot of dead kids, body parts and bits everywhere. There were still cluster bombs all the way round us. I picked up this small girl... She had a massive gash to the back of her neck. It was a shrapnel wound. I think there was a lad as well. I think he died. We had to keep all the adults away because they were trying to get the bodies, but the, but there were still live cluster bombs around. So we tried to keep them away. We got on the radio and let them know, and 40 minutes later, the ambulances started showing up. I mean, that's awful. That is just terrible. And you, you can imagine that... The, the feelings of everybody involved. Uh, the, 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 the surviving kids were picked up tanked to the army camp for medical treatment. Uh, there were reports six kids had been killed in that explosion. And as the casualties arrived at the camp, they, 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 they put into action their, their first aid training. This is what it's all about. And this is Signaler Dan Z of 7th Regiment. Uh, there were some minor casualties coming in. A little girl about four or five had been hit in the face, the arm. She'd caught a bit of shrapnel. Uh, uh, she, uh, a bit of shrapnel had hit her in every limb in her body. She was in quite a bit of pain. I started giving her a bit of first aid, dropped the tailboard on the back of the Land Rover and put, it, put her on it. There was quite a large crowd around us and I felt a bit uncomfortable with my weapon slung on my back. 
The wounds looked more serious than they were, but some cuts were quite deep and were quite infected. I made trips up to the village every other day to see how she was getting on. By the time we left, she was running around being happy. And that's a, a that's nicer. Yeah. But it's not so good for the other six, if you see what I mean. Yeah, and that's a, a real piece of unselfconscious hearts and minds work that could have been straight out of the textbook. Yeah. But underneath it all, there was an ever-present tension between the invaded and their invaders. The most innocent of situations could suddenly mutate into a threat and it was difficult not to overreact. And this, you're going to be Adam Z, going to Adam Z, 7th RHA. There was a kid of about 14. He pulled an AK-47 out from behind his back and actually pointed it and cocked it. By this time, we had our weapons pointed at him. We didn't know if it was loaded, so none of us fired. We were told not to fire until fired upon. We told him to get down on the floor and I went over, took the weapon off him and made it safe. We found out the weapon was fully loaded. That was quite weird because a couple of days later we were playing football with him. Yeah, that's another interesting thing. Now, they, they, they were also, they were, uh, they were randomly fired at the, the army camp from, from the village, a, a sort of uh, Iraqi fuel de joie. What does that mean? don't know. It's French. Joyful I'm fire. learning Spanish. Oh, yeah. It's the same thing. Uh, that as ever could have ended up in... I mean, you can fire random shots yeah, and kill people. And this is a signal of Dan Z. Dan Z. Danny. Danny. I'm getting familiar now. Dan Z of 7th Regiment. It was night time. Uh, for, for whatever reason, the village had something to celebrate. If forever. <laughs> Reading by Pete. If forever. <laughs> Another. Why not start again? No, I'm going to have another shot of that. If, for whatever reason, the village had something to celebrate, they would do the old Bosnian unload. Finger on the trigger, wouldn't let go till it stops. They start firing off into the air. What would happen is, as they get a little bit excited, the rounds would start to creep down, and the odd round would come in your direction. They obviously squeezed off a few rounds and then thought, Come on, let's have a crack. And they fired off a couple of rounds in our direction. They hit the building where we were sleeping, not particularly far over our heads. At this point, we're all ready to go. Jump over the wall, start firing and manoeuvring towards the firing point. Fortunately for whoever fired, they didn't fire another one because we were going to go on the next round that was fired. Fortunately for him, indeed fortunately for us, we didn't go over the wall and we left it at that. And uh, That would have been interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. You've got a book called Fire and Movement, haven't you, Pete? Yes, but it's about 1914. Just advertising it. forgotten it existed. Now, their daily life was one of considerable discomfort given the extreme nature of the conditions and the inhospitable climate for men more used to coping with the wind and rain and penetrating cold of a winter's day in Nottingham than the furnace heat of Iraq. Yeah, that is different. I've, I've noticed a certain difference about hot countries and... Well, for one thing, thirst and dehydration were a constant problem and the men had been warned that they should drink quantities of water that seemed ludicrous in normal circumstances. Do you drink water? In, well, it's the same when we go to Gallipoli, Peter. How much water do we drink in we, Gallipoli? Yeah, we drink gallons of it. And this is. And then a, what do we do? We drink more. This is our good friend, Bombardier Warren Y, also of 7th Regiment. Water came up in huge, great, big pallets, three or four every day. You got six one-and-a-half-litre bottles a day per man. There were plenty. There was that much of it. We could have made a mini-ocean in, in Iraq. 
We were told we were supposed to consume three one and a half litre bottles of water a day. Try to keep your fluid intake up. It's quite difficult though, because we couldn't keep it cold. But you've got an old pair of socks, dunk them with the water bottles inside uh, with the water bottles, dunk them with the water bottles inside in water, and then you tied them onto the wing mirror of your vehicle. The effect of condensation kept it like a little fridge, as long as you could keep the socks wet. It would keep the water cold. The Americans would be drinking their warm water while we had nice cold water, and they could never understand how we did it, so we never told them. Well, one thing about that is that's a trick that they that they did in the uh, desert in, in the, the Second, uh, Second World, World War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The awesome logistical power of the Allies was revealed in the method of taking showers. Uh, there was absolutely no shortage of bottled water, and it was used in so-called solar showers. And uh, you're going to tell us what Signaler Dan Z says. It's a big plastic bag you fill with bottled water, and you leave it out in the sun. And obviously, the sun heats it, so you can have a reasonably warm shower later on. If you if you couldn't get hold of one, you just use bottled water. Pour a bottle over yourself to wet yourself down and use shower gel or shampoo to clean yourself and then use a bottle of water to rinse it off. Blimey. Water, water everywhere. Water, water everywhere and not a drop. No, plenty to drink. Plenty. Sunblock, that was also plentiful. Not for sunbathing, but simply to try to maintain a normal existence. They'd all been repeatedly warned of the grim consequences of sunstroke agonising sunburn and the possible life-threatening cancerous consequences in their later lives of prolonged exposure to the ubiquitous ultraviolet rays. That's the sunshine, is it? It is, and it's quite damaging. Can you imagine it being in it all the time? Well, yeah, and if you, you, you know, if you, if you just stand about, you get burned and then... You... So what the Australians did... have a plague of uh, skin cancer, don't they? Yeah. So what did Bombardier Warren Wise say? We were issued with sunblock factor 35 army sunblock. It was very good, and they were ten a penny. So if you ran out, you just went and got some more. Not four hundred and fifty Turkish lira, then. Now, don't be bitter that that's what. How much was the one he sold me? Half that, wasn't it? Yeah. Now at night they slept in simple camp cots that were simply ordinary camp beds with mosquito nets attached to help prevent malaria by keeping the mosquitoes firmly at bay. Let me get this straight. So the simple camp cots were simply? Yeah, simple and simply. Your uh, symbol. There were many other insect pests all over the place that all seemed strange. You're strange. Yeah, this is Bombardier Warren Y. The worst things were the ants. We nicknamed, we nicknamed them bullet ants. They were absolutely huge. They could take a 16-stone bloke, tread in on them, and they would still get up and walk away. <laughs> they were massive, two centimetres in length. If you, if you let them... If you let them, three or four of them would pick up your truck and move them away. They were that strong. Do you think he might be exaggerating for comic effect there? Somewhat. I can also think... I've got away with this, have I? No. 16 stone bloke? Mm. Have you ever been picked up and walked off with an ant? Unfortunately, I'm not quite 16 stone. What are you, Gary? Nothing. Uh, but some of the insect life was credited with a far more serious potential to cause personal harm to the unwary, and they could cause widespread panic amongst the troops, which was pr 
probably a little bit over the top. And once I'm not more, so sure. As I read this next quote, I know what I'd do. Uh, this is Bombardier Warren Y, 7th RHA. We started seeing camel spiders, which are particularly nasty. They're not very big. They fit on the palm of an average man's hand. Now, sorry. <laughs> I'm now looking at an average man's hand. And anything that can fit comfortably on that is too big for me. Uh, that's, uh, I said that, not him. Uh, fair blah, blah, hand. But they rear up onto their hind legs and they hiss. They can leap up to three to four feet, apparently, and they eat flesh. An absolute nightmare to see 16 paratroopers leaping about because of one little spider running around the room was quite funny. And, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that I would be scared of that. Well, I think most people would be. And at this point, we'll take a short break, a very short break. Are we going to think about spiders? We're going to imagine them. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The daily food rations issued to them were quite basic, but far superior to the unrelieved liquid bully beef and dry biscuits that had been the fodder of their yeomanry predecessors in Gallipoli and Palestine in the Great War, or indeed 20 years later in the Western Desert during the Second World War. Yeah, that, that's right, yeah. And this is what Bombardier Warren Y, 7th RHA, said. We had 24-hour ration packs. They came in little cardboard boxes. You, you get one breakfast, one evening meal, and a pudding. The menus all change and there's some better than others. The one everyone really wanted was Menu H. The breakfast was beans and party sausages. The dinner was pasta and a creamy chicken and mushroom sauce. And chocolate pudding to finish. That was nice. Everyone hated the one with the hamburger and beans for breakfast. 
That's all right to me. The dinner was Lancashire hot pot, which wasn't particularly good. And the worst pudding of all, treacle pudding. The treacle could have stuck someone to a shell and fired him over Iraq. It was that sticky, you couldn't eat it. It was awful. It really was. That was the one you seemed to get the most of. <laughs> I think the army was trying to get, get, the, get rid of the surplus stocks of it. We never got a fresh rations at all in five months. That's so that's the equivalent of plum and apple jam then. Yeah, yeah. Bizarrely, you can buy the ration packs on eBay. Chris Carling, our good friend Chris Carling, has sent me a tin of compost sausages and processed cheese. From uh, didn't the, he once buy some of that toilet paper that he used to? He did. No, I bought it, didn't I? Oh, right. <laughs> now moving on swiftly. <laughs> what goes in, Gary, must come out. So and, what we're we talking uh, about next? Well, it's the simple latrine arrangements, and and they wouldn't have been uh, unfamiliar in makeshift design to their predecessors. And you're being very busy today. I am. You're Gary. now going to tell us what Signaler Dan Z says. For your inerting, we use desert roses. You dig a two feet wide hole, three feet deep. You fill it with loose stones, gravel, whatever you can find that's not going to get clogged up. Then you insert a tube at an appropriate height and fill the hole back in. You urinate down the hole and then the urine is dissipated deep in the ground to avoid the smell and the flies. Going for a crap, that's quite emotional. Especially when you've been there for a while. The smell... You dig as deep as you can, six foot, as deep as you can. You put two pallets down, cut a hole in the pallet, and then you sit on the pallet. Then what do you do, Gary? Yes, everyone was endlessly warned of the importance of personal hygiene, but the conditions were such that it was difficult to avoid transmitting infection. Once it had started, there seemed to be no stopping it in every sense of the word. And this is Troop Sergeant Major Andy P of 7th Regiment. Out of 700 people, at least 500 must have gone down with sickness and diarrhoea. They reckon it was lack of basic hygiene, but there were loads and loads of big meat flies out there, and they said they were doing it. Good Friday it was. I started feeling a bit queasy in the morning. By tea time, I was feeling worse for wear, and I couldn't sleep that night. I got up two or three times, rushing to the toilets, and not being crude, but I was pissing out of my arse. It was vile. About two o'clock in the morning, I couldn't even run to the toilet. It was only 10 to 15 metres away. I just couldn't get there, and I just dropped my shorts, and it all came out. I was on my hands and knees, nearly in tears. I was in so much discomfort. Next morning, I thought, sod this, I'm going sick. Now, what does that remind you of, Gary? Thinking back to... Oh, to Gallipoli. Gallipoli. Bain's disease? Well, no, no, no. No, no this I'm, is the real thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm, th- I'm thinking of the tales of the, uh, the the friend who was like a guardsman weeks yeah. earlier. And then he's shitting himself and, yeah. and then he falls into the latrine and uh, he drowns there. And yeah, this is how bad it can get, isn't it? Uh, Bain's disease is a minor, trivial thing. Although Hart's variant was, I think... Uh, I think that was much worse, wasn't it, Pete? Now... Uh, Troop Sergeant Major Andy P was taken in by the medics and spent a solid, or perhaps not so solid, 36 hours oh, in the Gary, tent, you and your drinking puns. immense quantities of fluid with no food, and in effect, he was sweating it out. Uh, he rejoined the unit a good deal thinner, and actually, during the tour, he lost an impressive two and a half stone. Perhaps you should go, uh, perhaps I should go on one of these tours. I could do with losing two and a half stone. Now, uh, 
In such essentially trying conditions, it was important to the overall maintenance of morale that they were kept in frequent touch with their families, friends and girlfriends back in the UK. Their grandfathers had only letters to rely on and uh, an exchange of letters could take weeks or even months. Air travel had certainly speeded things up. Hey, and Dad. of course, they might be uh, getting in touch with their boyfriends as well because there were women in Iraq. There's modern, modern army. And indeed, some of the men But we've not mentioned them. Some of the men might have been. Just pointing it out. And once more, you're going to be signaller Dan Zed. Aha. We had letters, blueies, an airmail letter you can send for free. Your families can write and send blueies to you for free. I'm not the greatest correspondent in the world. I was maybe averaging one a day to somebody different, whether it be my girlfriend, my family, different relatives. I wrote a few letters to the battery. I didn't, me, I didn't write... Purely to keep in contact, I actually wrote for something to give me something to do. You can't put what you're doing and when you're doing it. The letters are quite boring because you're very restricted in what you can say. It's, hi, how are you? I'm well. You basically just fill the letter with crap. (laughs) But Andy paid it. (laughs) There's nothing better on tour than getting a letter, though. It would be full of useful information so you'd find out what's going on so you're not completely in the dark when you go home. And I know it might sound soppy, but love and affection, especially from my girlfriend, so that you feel better. And again, there's a parallel with the Great War, isn't there? Oh, there in, is. in the cards, of, you know, I am fine, I am wounded, I am in hospital. Yeah, you know, the, the cards that they sent home from the, the Yeah, the and the letters, uh, hope this fights you as it leaves me in the pink, which 8,042 of them... So some things never change. Now, the men received a stream of letters, parcels and magazines from the serving battery at Bullwell Drill Hall and from the ever-supported veterans of the South Nazi Zars Association. Well, they, they'd understand what they were going through, wouldn't they? The veterans from the Second World War. But it was difficult to write for those who weren't used to writing letters and a few found that their best intentions turned to ashes. You mean they didn't get round to him? But well, there's something else they could do, something new that they definitely didn't have in the Second World War. What's that? Well, mobiles and satellite telephones, they would have been impossible to conceive during the Second World War, but they were now commonplace. Men had the chance to actually speak to their loved ones and friends from what was, after all, active service. I bet that made for some interesting conversations. Oh, I think some of them would have been a bit awkward, don't you? And certainly emotional. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even, even as they're speaking to people back home, uh, there's much to remind them that they're, they're not back in bloody Nottingham, are they? They can talk to people, they can write to them. But well, what do you think makes them realise that? I'm not... I'm not in, not in him. Well, although I, I'm not sure I agree with this, but the all-pervading heat, the glare, and of course the local Iraqis were still everywhere in evidence. That sounds the heat and pervading the glare. That's not in them, isn't it? It's no. known, known sunshine coast of Britain. <laughs> sunshine coast, the centre of Britain. <laughs> yeah. So now the point is that Saddam Hussein's been defeated, but. What's becoming more and more evident is the British are not going to be very welcome guests in Iraq. And uh, this is Bombardier Warren Y, 7th RHA. There was no animosity. However, they made it quite clear that they wanted us out of the way as quick as possible. But while we were there, they were quite prepared to work with us because they realised there was something we could do to help them. They they didn't want a military presence, so we were quite low-key, and I think they appreciated that. Obviously, we had to have certain specific routine, mundane tasks that we had to do uh, all the time. We went to lots of meetings with uh, like tribal elders. They would have interpreters, and they would say, 
we're not happy with them coming to this area. We would say, well, we understand this is not an ideal situation for you. However, tough. We're here to help you, so, but we're, we're not going to stop doing something we've got to do. So I either like it or lump it. It's a bit harsh, I think. A lot of the time they were like, that's fine. But towards the end of it, they really wanted us to go. It was getting to the point of, yep, you're fine, but go. We could all understand that. And to be honest with you, we were saying, we don't want to be here. We want to go home. We've been here and fought a war and we don't want to be sitting around here any longer than we need to be. They put up with us because they knew we didn't want to mess them around any more than we had to. But if they stepped over the line, they knew that we'd come down on them like a ton of bricks. And, and that's all muddled. I understand it's all muddled, but it's also the way he saw things, isn't it? Yes, and, and as we were debating before the podcast, the end of hostilities uh, in 2003 didn't mean the end of the war. No, when, that was 2011 or something, wasn't it? As later defined, yeah. Now, the 7th RHA officers were alert to gathering tensions building up amongst the men and tried to relieve the stresses by organising a big party. And this is Bombardier Warren Wire. There was a battery smoker, a party with a barbecue and non-alcoholic beer. As far as most people are concerned, what's the point? <laughs> I agree about non-alcoholic beer, but it was very good, actually. All the chefs got together and made and they made three very good curries. The whole of the unit had a day off. We had donkey races. There were party games. They had a massive blow-up swimming pool with a scaffold pole across it. And there were pugil stick fights. That went on to the early hours of the morning. Stress relief-wise, it was a good blow-off valve to let us lads get rid of a bit of steam. Yeah. What are they really looking for? What do they really want? What what do they want? What do they really want? They really, really want. Well, I think you're referring to the prospect of demobilisation at the end of their tour, and it simply couldn't come quick enough. Even those who'd enjoyed the overall experience were yearning for an end to it all and a return to the luxuries of England. And then something happened. The, 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 this was, I remember, they were all absolutely pissed because the, the, there, was a, 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 the, there was a prospect of a, not, not a sort of two-day delay, a two-month delay, and also a reassignment from the relative backwater where they were to the epicentre of the insurgency around Baghdad. And this is what signaller Dan Zed, 7th RHA, said. Part of 16th Air Assault Brigade nearly went to Baghdad and 7th RHA were going to be detailed off for this. Everybody's morale nosedived at that point because we thought, fucking hell, we're going to have to spend another couple of months in this hole. I bet he said something more than that as well. The Americans who'd asked for help were certainly unpopular. Oh, with while the politicians in London decided whether to accede to the US request. Yeah, they're unpopular with the, the they're lads. The lads, they're not going to be popular, are they? And once more, Bombardier Warren Y tells us what he thought. Well, we were all brought together and the colonel came straight out and said, look, guys, the chances are you aren't going to get these flights home, he means. You're going to Baghdad. The morale at that point could not have sunk any lower. We were definitely into minus figures by that point. We couldn't find out for 48 hours whether it was going to happen. For those 48 hours, there was quite a lot of moaning going on. Then they got us together. (laughs) Right, we're going to talk about what's going to happen next in terms of Baghdad. He stood there and said, guys, bad news. We're going to have to send you home. They've refused it. 
that place erupted and it led to another party. Bottles of gin, vodka, rum started appearing out of people's burgers. There were cigars started appearing and everyone felt they were home already. It was an immense relief. It's difficult to explain exactly how it felt. I think we can understand that. Uh, was it non-alcoholic gin, rum and vodka? No. Now, at last, they were on their way home. As they set off back to Kuwait and the flight back home, there was one last ironic twist, as Dan Zed was finally issued with the right uniform. Perhaps the army still had a bit of a warped sense of humour, Pete. This is Dan Zed. I finally got my de- desert uniform after three months of wearing a green uniform in a yellow country. And it's a short quote, that one, Gary. Yes, but, um, but uh, rather think, apt. <laughs> I think he makes his point. Now, they got home on the 2nd of June, 2003. They found the administration process incredibly streamlined and with a few hours of landing, they were safely back with their families and girlfriends. To the relief of everyone, there'd been no casualties. Not amongst the South, not to SARS detachment, no. That's absolutely... Uh, what happens then? They've got a period of leave uh, uh, and they don't have to even attend the, the TA anymore uh, for a while. Uh, and, 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 and and indeed, they're technically still regular soldiers until that leave expires. So they didn't even have to go back to their civilian jobs no, at that point? No, not until... They're on leave. Um now, the, 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 even though they'd been away only a relatively short period, they still have to reacclimatize to, and to assimilate all that's happened to them. And this is worth remembering. It doesn't. It doesn't take long before you. You know. And, and there's another point, isn't it? And this is a point I think a lot of the lads made. What was that? Well, they'd gone out as young boys, and in many ways they'd returned as men. And that's that's a refrain you get often. First World War, Second World War, any war, Korean War. They go out as boys and come back as men. Yeah, and it's not just a, a you know an old cliche. It's a physical fact, sort of driven home. And this is uh, what uh, Second Lieutenant Ali Burns thought when he first encounters Gunner Adam Zed on his return from Iraq. And and and, and Adam was literally unrecognisable. And this is what Second Lieutenant Alistair Burns says: Five Twenty Battery Three Hundred Seven. I walked through the junior NCOs bar. I walked past this guy on my left, and I looked at him and thought. I sort of recognise him. Not sure who it is. As I got to the bar, I stopped, called myself a number of words, turned round and walked back to Gunner Adam Zed, who was standing at the side. It was the first time the phrase, I sent a boy to war and a man came back, ever rang true to me. He'd grown up so much and I physically didn't recognise him. He had matured that much. Now, both Dan Zed and Adam Zed had, had learnt a lot. They'd taken a lot from, from their experiences in, in Iraq. Uh, they were both still young lads. Uh, they, they had bugger all work prospects in Nottingham, uh, at least in the short term. Yeah, and uh, and well, it's, yeah, it was hard times. Remember that, and it, it, they seriously considered joining the regular army and making their, their full time career as opposed to their hobby. A bit like uh, me making the First World War. My and one of them decided it was not for him. And this well, is, this is signaler Dan Zed. Yeah, and he said, I made up my mind that I didn't want to join the regular army. It's not the regular army is a bad thing. I like the wars and tours. I don't enjoy garrison life. They don't do very much in camp. It's a very limited set existence. They can't do what they want. Well, then, then, then they want to do it. Well, if you, that's always human nature. They do earn their money when they go on tour, but they don't in camp because they 
go and do a, a couple of hours work and then that's the, that's them done for the rest of the day i like to be kept busy guess what career he took up gardener no nope, have another guess professional footballer no nope, another guess um oyster salesman no nope. i'm not going to guess all day he joined the regular army excellent <laughs> <laughs> now, because in the end he was tempted back. And, well, also uh, the prospects in Nottingham, in that part of the that's world. That's right. And and for all that, the, the, all he, what he just said, this in between, I mean, well, that's what he said during the interview, but I know since he joined the regular army and making a very successful career out of it. Now, arriving back in June 2003, as they did, the uh, Iraq detachment were able to attend the Knightsbridge dinner. We've heard of Knightsbridge. Organised every year by the sergeant's mess in honour of the dwindling band of survivors from the men who'd fought to the last round in that dreadful battle on the 6th of June 1942. A battle the South Nazis ours have never, never, ever forgotten. And we've not forgotten it either. We did a couple of podcasts on that that terrible battle and you can find them on, on the internet. Uh what, what, what do you think it was like for those young lads? Well, for many of them, it was an emotional affair as they realised they'd joined a club of men who'd faced death in the cause of their country, a deep, lifelong association that most of them had never realised existed. Yeah, and this is Bombardier Warren Y, who's 425 Troop 307 Battery. It was the first time I'd ever been. It was great speaking to the old boys, down-to-earth blokes. These were the grunts who were on the guns and did some pretty amazing things. It made us feel a bit insignificant, really. We knew something of what they'd experienced. So modest about what they'd done, and, but also they recognised that they recognised that how long, though. The Second World War, if you were sent off to that, you were there for five well, and years. And also how bad it must have been in the Western Desert in 1942, surrounded by Rommel's panzers with no air support and only a minimal chance of escaping with your life. And this is what uh, signaller Dan, Dan Z 307 battery said. We got a standing ovation from the Knightsbridge veterans. And for me, I didn't deserve it. I really didn't think I deserved it. For these 80-year-olds to struggle up, to stand up, to clap you is quite humbling. What we'd been through was absolutely nothing compared with what they must have gone through at the Cauldron and Knightsbridge. What a nice young chap he was. Yeah, but the South Nuts is ours, and indeed young Dan Zed were not finished with Iraq. What, you mean that there's more peacetime with the South Nuts is ours at war? I think there might be. One more episode. Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?